I urge you again in your copy of God's Word to turn to the book of Romans. We find ourselves in Romans chapter 4. We'll be picking up in verse 23 and going through the end of the chapter. Please hear again the word of God Almighty. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Would you please pray with me? Oh Lord, as we give our attention to your word, we seek your help. We know that your word is spiritual and that it is made effective by God the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, your help in the proclaiming of your word and the hearing of it and the believing of it and the treasuring of it in our hearts. I ask, oh God, that you would keep your preacher faithful to your word and honoring to you and edifying to your saints. And that, oh God, you would build up your church by your mighty power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to the end of chapter 4, which this is not helping me get ahead of Pastor Heupel in his preaching in Genesis. He even said last week that he thought I should have preached my Roman series in the morning so I might get a chance to catch up. But it was really not fair when he did all of chapter 5 in one sermon. That, I feel like that was not fair, just my personal opinion. Uh, but as we come here to the end of chapter 4, the apostle concludes his discussion of Abraham and shows that the patriarch is not just an historical figure, but rather he is the pattern or a pattern of obtaining righteousness by faith in God. Right? Abraham is a pattern for obtaining righteousness by faith in God and God who provides that very righteousness. In these verses, we will see two points. The first is that pattern, and the second is God's provision. First, we consider this pattern. God imputes righteousness to those who believe. Now, if we've been paying attention to Romans chapter 4, this conclusion is hardly surprising. It is what the apostle has been driving at this whole time. Back in verse 3 of this chapter, the apostle, quoting Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Continuing in verse 5, he said, faith is counted for righteousness. And again in verse 9, faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. He tells us in verse 11 of chapter 4 that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. And then in verses 21 and 22, which we read recently, Abraham was fully persuaded that God who had promised was able to perform. Therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. So this is really what the apostle has been driving at throughout this whole chapter, is that Abraham 
is it an example of righteousness by faith? And, and now what he wants to say is, not only is Abraham an example of this, one illustration, but indeed what is true of Abraham is just as true for us. Now we said that righteousness refers to being acceptable in the eyes of God. And the scriptures say that Abraham was acceptable in the eyes of God because God counted him righteous. Remember, it wasn't anything that Abraham did. It wasn't by his circumcision. It wasn't by his obedience. It wasn't anything in Abraham. In fact, it was Abraham's explicit lack of the ability to do it for himself that made his faith so significant. Now, this word imputed is also sometimes translated as reckoned or counted or accounted. We've said that this refers to God's action of crediting righteousness to Abraham. Now, since this righteousness is imputed or reckoned, it follows necessarily that it was not something that came from Abraham, doesn't it? God would not need to reckon it to Abraham if Abraham could have produced it or manufactured it or accomplished it in some way. So this is something credited to Abraham. And what did he obtain? He obtained the righteousness of God. It is the very thing which, if you remember from chapter 1 in Romans, that mankind lacks. Mankind is being judged for his unrighteousness. All right, so that is the imputation in the pattern. I want to talk for a moment about the condition that Abraham and we have in common. We saw throughout chapter 4 that Abraham was counted righteous when he believed. Now here again in verse 24, we see that same condition applied to us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up our uh, up Jesus our lord from the dead you may recall back in chapter 4 verse 17 that abraham believed in the god who gives life to the dead and i hope you see the parallel then between abraham's faith and yours each of us must have faith in god who raises the dead In verse 24, if you will look at it, you will note that the object of our faith is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Do you know that the object, by the object, I mean, on what did Abraham's faith terminate? Or on what does our faith terminate? What are we believing when we believe? And it says here that we are believing in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Do you know that Abraham believed in the God who raised Jesus from the dead? The difference is that Abraham believed in that God before he raised Jesus from the dead. And we believe in that same God after he has raised Jesus from the dead. Now he is of course the same God. And our Lord Jesus is the same Lord Jesus who was revealed to the Old Testament saints by promises and prophecies and the sacrifices and circumcision and the Passover and the tabernacle and all of these things, which were for those people sufficient to give them hope and faith in the coming Messiah. 
This is how Jesus could tell the crowds that Abraham looked forward to his day and rejoiced. It is also what the Apostle Paul means in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, when he says that the Scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Because it is, of course, the same God giving the same promise on the same condition, which is to believe in the God who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. We believe in the same God as Abraham and according to the same promise and the same Christ. Therefore, we receive the same righteousness that Abraham received, even the righteousness of God. And we also receive it in the same manner, which is to say by imputation. It is reckoned to us. Now, you may have noticed that verse 24 speaks of faith in God who raised Jesus from the dead. We are accustomed to speaking of faith in Jesus, right? And that's, actually, we do well to do so. For example, Paul told the Philippian jailer, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And in that instance, it's clear that Jesus is the object of our faith. But here in verse 24, there is no mistaking the object of our faith is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. But what I want you to understand is this. Believing in the God who raised Jesus from the dead and believing in Jesus who was raised from the dead are really one and the same thing. This is, first of all, because our Lord Jesus is God. And he is the God who raised him from the dead. He is the second person of the Trinity. And we know that there is one God who is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we know that the Father begets the Son and that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And that none of the persons in the Trinity act independently in the works of creation or redemption. Every activity in the saving of men's souls is the work of the whole Trinity. Jesus was raised, as we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, by God the Holy Spirit. But do you know that God the Holy Spirit did not send himself to raise Jesus? In order for the Spirit to raise Jesus, he needed to be sent by Jesus. So the Spirit being sent by the Father and the Son did the will of the Father to raise the Son from the dead. Because in every work of salvation, we have all three persons of the Trinity working together. This should be to us a great encouragement on the certainty of our salvation. And obviously, any one person of the Trinity is strong enough to save us. But just understand that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all three working in unison according to their own perfect will and using the power of the whole Godhead to accomplish your salvation. Now, God is revealed to us, however, primarily in the person of his Son. In John's Gospel, in verse 18 of chapter 1, we read, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, has declared him. What Jesus, or excuse me, what John is saying there is that God is made known to us in Jesus Christ. 
At one point, do you remember, Philip said, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus said to Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long that you do not know me? You see, to see Jesus was to see God. And it is the same for us. Jesus is principally how God reveals himself to us. In John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's not telling them to believe in two gods. He is telling them that to believe in God is to believe in him, and to believe in him is to believe in God. Now, before we move on from this point, I want us to consider for a moment the immense privilege that we have in comparison even to Abraham. Abraham knew God very well. Abraham earned for himself a very good reputation. He is called a friend of God. He is the man of faith. He is the father of all who believe. Yet we who live after the resurrection of Christ have been given a much fuller revelation of the gospel than even Abraham had. Now I think at times we underestimate exactly what the Old Testament saints knew. Right? For instance, if we go back and read in the Old Testament and we strain and squint and we start seeing these types in the various Old Testament ordinances, we have to understand that they very well may have understood those ordinances as pointing to Christ in ways that we didn't at first see. Nevertheless, it is plain that in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son and has given us a much fuller revelation of the gospel. This is a great privilege to us, and it should be a great consolation. We, we were born at a point in, in history, according to God's providence, that is a great blessing. And we should have much comfort and consolation in that. But we should also beware that there is a great danger in rejecting that fuller revelation. We understand that by a principle of God's justice, that the more we know the more we are responsible for believing and obeying. Remember mankind's guilty knowledge of God back in chapter 1, right? Though they know God, they do not worship him or give thanks to him, right? It's that knowledge of things increases our responsibility. And we, as Christians, as believers who have come after the resurrection and have the fuller revelation of God, have a tremendous responsibility. It would have been shameful, and we see instances of Abraham in which he did not walk in the way, and it was shameful. But it is even more so for us who have a much fuller revelation. So then that is the pattern, is that God imputes righteousness to those who believe, those who believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead, which is to say the same thing as to believe in Jesus who was raised from the dead. Abraham is that pattern, and that was not written for him only, but also for we who believe. Let's look for a moment at God's provision. God has a pattern for how men obtain righteousness, but that pattern includes how God himself is always the one who provides it. You know, in Genesis chapter 22, when uh, the Lord commanded uh, Abraham to take Isaac to sacrifice him. And around about verse 7, 
Isaac starts looking around. He's like, Father, here's the wood and here's the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham tells Isaac something interesting. He says, the Lord will provide, son. And then, of course, when the Lord does spare Isaac and offers a substitute, Abraham names that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. And that is something that Abraham understood. And what we must understand is that God provides the righteousness that we need. And he does so, like in the case in, in Genesis 22, he does so by means of a sacrifice in place of his people. So this provision includes both a payment and a proclamation. And this is in verse 25. We see two parts, a payment and a proclamation. First of all, Jesus was delivered up for our offenses. That's the payment. Jesus himself was delivered up, not for offenses of his own, but rather for your offenses. Now this word delivered is found in Romans chapter 1, verses 24, 26, and 28. You'll recognize it. God gave them up to uncleanness. That's the word, delivered. God gave them up unto vile affections. That's the same word, delivered. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. In all of those instances, it's the same word as what is being said here about Jesus being delivered up for the offenses of us. Now, in those instances, men were delivered for their own offenses. They did things which they know deserved death, and God gave them over, right? He delivered them up to the consequences of their sins. Well, in a very similar way, that's what's taking place here. God delivered Jesus for our offenses, right? So in other words, Jesus was, God gave up Jesus in order that we might not be given up to uncleanness. God gave up Jesus in order that we might not be given up to vile affections. God gave up Jesus in order that we might not be given over to a reprobate mind. We find a poignant description of all of this in Isaiah chapter 53. I'm just going to read some portions of it, but it's it's verses 4 through 11, and I'm just going to hit some highlights. This all speaking, of course, of the Lord Jesus and him being delivered. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. For he shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is Isaiah talking about Jesus being delivered for our offenses. Now, we know that Jesus was delivered to the cross by sinful men. For instance, the scribes and the chief priests, 
colluded together to deliver him over, even using that same word that Paul uses here. As with Judas, who confesses that he has betrayed innocent blood. Here again, the same verb. The verb is translated betrayed when Judas does it, and it's translated as delivered here in Romans 4. Meanwhile, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. But we also know that Jesus gave himself for our sins. He went willingly, gave himself for our... Galatians chapter 1, verse 4 says, Jesus gave himself for our sins. Yet here, and in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, it is clear that it is God who gave him over. Romans 8, 32 says, God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. And I want to take just a moment to to show you the sovereignty of God in something we call concurrence. And what I mean by concurrence is the confluence or working together of many different causes. All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to pick up, let's see, in Acts chapter 4, we'll pick up in verse 26. This is the apostles when they're praying for boldness after they've been persecuted. And they say, The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do what Ever your hand and your purpose determined to be done. Do you see how in this giving over of Jesus to be crucified unjustly, right? All of this was, first of all, in verse 28, what God's hand and purpose had determined to be done. This was God's sovereign plan. We read about that in Isaiah. God always intended for Jesus to go to the cross. But look at the four other agents involved. Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. All of them, wicked men, doing their own wicked will, giving Jesus over to death, yet accomplishing the holy and sovereign will of God. That's concurrence. You have many different causes contributing to a single effect, all of it under the sovereign control of God. So Jesus was delivered for our offenses. Look then at this proclamation. He was raised because of our justification. You see, by raising Jesus from the dead, the Father proclaimed that he was satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. And hence, our sins could be forgiven. Matthew Henry describes it this way. In his burial, Jesus was imprisoned by death. God put him in the prison of death for our sins. And in his resurrection, he was released from that prison. If the debt had not been satisfied, God would not have released him from that prison. 
And if you think about this, we understand this. If a man has been imprisoned and he's served his sentence and he gets out, we say, well, he's paid his debt to society. And, and if someone gets let out too early, we say, well, that's not justice. And so Matthew Henry is saying, God, in raising Jesus from the dead, is showing that justice had been satisfied. Now, there is a sense in which Jesus being raised from the dead was also a declaration of his own justification. I do not mean his needing to be justified by forgiveness of sins, but rather think of it. Jesus was the Son of God who humbled himself, and he came and he taught, and he claimed to be the Son of God, and he taught people to believe in them, and he taught people to worship him, and he told people that he would forgive sins, and he told people that he would die to pay for their sins, and he said on the third day he would be raised from the dead And they didn't believe him. And so when he was raised from the dead, God declared by power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus really was the Son of God. And therefore Jesus was in that instance vindicated or justified. He was shown to be truthful. He was proven to really be the Son of God who did what he said he was going to do. Now we receive that justification when we are united to Jesus by faith. We receive his being vindicated as the Son of God when we believe in him. And we receive the benefits of his death, which was proven to be successful by his resurrection when we believe in him. And so in the raising of Jesus, because of our justification, we must understand this to be saying that it was proof that our debt was paid. And it was proof that God was satisfied. Even as it said in Isaiah, his soul will be satisfied, right? It pleased God to bruise him. But then God, having done that, saw In Jesus, his righteous son. And was pleased then to raise him up from the dead again. Because he was holy and innocent. Now Jesus being raised from the dead should be to you a great source of comfort. Do you, Christian, believe this? Do you believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead? If you do, know that your sins are forgiven. Your sins were buried with him. And when he was resurrected, he did not bring them back out. Your sins are buried. Your life is hidden in Christ. This should be a great encouragement that the God who raised Jesus from the dead has also spiritually raised you up to walk in newness of life. But more than that, he did not abandon his son to the grave and neither will he abandon you. Do you know that the dead in Christ will hear their name called out someday by the voice of Jesus Christ? Jesus said this in John chapter 5, verse 25. The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Now this takes place two times in the believer's life. The first is when we first believe the gospel. And God regenerates us, taking us from death to life spiritually. But this happens another time. 
This happens on the day of resurrection. When our bodies that have been resting in the grave are brought up again just like Jesus was. And we are raised to live forever. We will be like Lazarus, right? Lazarus is dead. He doesn't know what's going on. And all of a sudden he hears, Lazarus, come forth. Someday you will hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his resurrection proves that this will happen. So do you believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead? If so, this is a great comfort to you and a great encouragement for you. We would be remiss, though, if we did not see a warning in this. We see that the death of Jesus, right, him being given over for our offenses, demonstrate for us the great severity of sin. How seriously God takes sin. Were sin a laughing matter to God, he would not have delivered his son over for our offenses. Do you see that? Abraham's son Isaac could not be spared from sacrifice if God did not provide that ram. You and I could not be spared the penalty of our offenses if God did not supply the Son of God. There is a severity to sin, and it it pleased God to crush, to bruise his Son when he bore our sins. And I have to tell you that it will please God to crush those who do not believe in Jesus for their sins. But those who do not believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins are not the sinless Son of God. There will be no coming back from it. There will be no relief to it. There will be no vindication. It will be everlasting and terrible torment. So the death of Jesus Christ, God giving him over for our offenses, shows to us the the severity of sin. Likewise, I want you to see that the resurrection also proves the certainty of God's judgment. The Apostle Paul says this in Acts chapter 17, verse 31. He says that God has given proof to all men of the judgment by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus being raised from the dead is proof that there will be a judgment of every man, woman, and child that is ever born onto the earth. Very simply, we see it this way. God has raised the judge from the dead. Jesus said that the Father has entrusted all judgment to him. And when God raised him from the dead, he raised up the judge of men's souls. He is the judge of the living and the dead. So the resurrection then proves that the day of God's judgment is coming, and we must be aware of it. There is a certainty to it. God would not have raised Jesus from the dead and left judgment unaccounted for. So in the end, we see there are really two and only two alternatives. We either believe in Jesus, who was delivered for our offenses, and then are counted righteous by God and receive justification and the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, or we die for our own sins, And we stand before God without any righteousness. And we are condemned and given over to everlasting damnation. Those are the two choices. Therefore, let us be sure that we believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your servant Abraham and for his faith in you. 
for his pattern of being justified, being granted your righteousness. But more than that, Lord, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who you gave over for our offenses and who you raised for our justification. We ask, O Lord, that you would give us a strong faith in him, that you would forgive all of our sins for his sake, and that we would remember that our sins did not come out of the grave with him, but rather remain buried far away from you as they can be. Help us, O God, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.